I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everyone. This is Raise Your Voice as part of the D-Raise Bay Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brett Rutherford. And joining me on today's episode, managing editor of DRaiseBay.com, Danny Russell. Hey, and it's not just me. We have a guest. Yes, very special guest from CBS Sports. National writer RJ Anderson will be joining us momentarily to talk about all the moves made thus far this offseason and what we can expect during and hopefully after the lockout once a new CBA has, has been agreed to. But another great discussion with RJ Anderson, now two-time guest on the D-Race Bay Podcast Network. I mean, RJ's a friend. He's a former writer at the site. Um, he used to run Beyond the Box Score as part of the uh, greater SB Nation network. Um, I always appreciate it. I hope you're reading what RJ puts together. He puts really um, extraordinary amounts of effort into not only power ranking his uh, top free agents and, and trade candidates, but also his prospect coverage is very well sourced. And if RJ is uh, putting together any big pieces or um, prospect lists, you can really trust that he's talked to the scouts. He's watched the tape and, and he knows what he talks about. So uh, I always appreciate getting a chance to get RJ on the record about things. Um and also enjoy what the record has to say about other things. You'll you'll get a little bit more about Joey Wendell and uh, his and my legacy opinions on uh, whether or not the race should be entrusting Joey Wendell with so much responsibility <laughs> and, and playing time. So it was great to have RJ on the pod again. Um, you should be reading his work at CBS Sports, but also you should listen to what we're about to talk about. Yeah, and without further ado, here's our discussion with RJ Anderson. <laughs> I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. RJ, you know, the offseason usually very busy time, but right now, for the most part, no deals being done. We are in a lockout. Uh, first off, like, what does life look like for you as a baseball writer in the middle of a lockout? Well, it's the fulfillment of the dream. I think every kid grows up <laughs> hoping to, to experience a debilitating work stoppage of their own. But no, it's been pretty boring. You know, uh, our coverage, we tailored it in a way where I'm doing a lot of prospect and draft calls right now, which is, you know, fun, but obviously not quite as fun as uh, we all hope this off season would be at this point. More time to do prospect coverage. Come on, RJ. Yeah. More time to do prospect coverage, more time to fawn over uh, Mr. Shane Boz. So living the high life here, Danny. I mean, welcome to my world. <laughs> I'm just glad the camera's not pointed at the giant. Uh, what, what are those fat heads? Are they called fat heads? The giant uh, yeah. full size. Yeah. Shane Boz. My wife is very mad. I just put it up on the wall in our room. <laughs> Is it just his head or is it his entire body? No, it's his whole body. 
Okay, because the head thing would creep me out as well, but the body, yeah, I'll, I'll give a pass on that one. No, okay, no. So really, so your your prospect writing, um, you you already did the legwork. What I appreciate some of your work at CBS is putting together these lists of of top free agents and trade candidates and kind of imagining the direction that the offseason is going to go in. And the lockout was at least somewhat appealing because we got that NBA style firestorm before the CBA kicked in. Mm -hmm. And I guess before, I mean, the Rays had their own moves in that, but before we get to the specifics of Tampa Bay, why would players do that? Why would they not wait for the CBA to get renegotiated and instead choose to sign early under the old rules? Well, the uncertainty goes both ways, right? If you're a player, and you have a chance to, you know, sign for what seems like your market value. You know, if someone's offering you 300 million, well, it's hard to turn that down, regardless of you know the uncertainty with CBA. But also just, you know, wanting to get your deal out of the way. They're human beings, and you know, if it were you or I, and we knew that our entire industry was going to shut down for, you know, potentially two plus months soon, we would probably want to have our employment wrapped up. So I think there's an element of that, and also just. You know, again, if they're offering market value, realistically, your market value is probably not going to go up more, too much more, at least uh, with the agreement of the new CBA. So I think I think those are probably the two biggest factors. I mean, yeah, these players want to get their deals locked up so they know once this lockout's over uh, where they can report to spring training, where they're going to be living during the season. And I guess I kind of have to ask, do you, do you have any idea when this thing's going to be over? Are we... Yeah, are, are these negotiations going to be advancing anytime soon? I'm anticipating that the season and spring training won't be compromised in any way. But you have to keep in mind that the way that Rob Manfred goes about business is that he often drags it out until the last minute. And I think we saw an example of that in 2020 when they were trying to reach an agreement on how they were going to play during the pandemic. Well, it took forever. It took until the last minute because that's just the way Manfred negotiates. I think it's strategical. You know, I think it's to try to weekend or you know, test the union's will. And I expect that's going to be the case here. Now, the good thing is I do think they're going to get a deal done. The bad thing is you wait so long and you eat up so much of the space. And all of a sudden, you know, if one of these powder kegs blows up during negotiations, well, then you're starting to worry about you know the season being compromised, spring training being pushed back, what have you. So uh, that's my read on the situation. But, you know, I'm not I'm not in the room and I'm not particularly close to the situation. As a journalist, you don't have skin in the game either, but is there anything you're, I don't want to say hoping for drops into the CBA, but what are things that you think aspirationally either players or owners should be accomplishing through the CBA process? And as an example, uh, a salary floor for uh, comes up to me for the players, but then maybe the owners want a salary cap. So how does this kind of yeah. play out? Yeah, I think the salary floor thing is pretty interesting. And you mentioned the salary cap, but in a sense, they're already operating with a salary cap, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like every team is treating the CBT as a unofficial salary cap. So, yeah, if you're the players, you may examine what the salary floor flesh threshold would have to be for it to make sense for you to agree to a hard cap. And I don't know the number. You know, I haven't done the math and probably not in position to do the math to where it makes sense. But that's something you probably have to look at. I guess I would be hopeful that both sides can find a way to you know just agree to some stuff that staves off the corrosive issues with the game and what i mean by that is i think you know the competitive aspect is pretty important i think that you know, you're talking about a regional sport everyone always says that baseball is the most regional of sports well you know if you have markets where 
where teams are just not trying at all. And I'm looking in your direction, Baltimore. You know, if you're just not trying at all and you're just taking this very cynical approach to the team building and franchise building, I think that's bad. And I don't think that you know, we should take that for granted. So I think that I believe it was Evan Jolich who reported the union had floated tying draft pick compensation or revenue sharing recipients to the record. So if you finished up, I think it was above 500, you would get an extra draft pick. And I think that's pretty creative. And I think stuff like that would encourage these teams who are rebuilding to try to be a little bit more competitive rather than just waiting until all their ships are in to dock or whatever prospect wise. Because I mean, again, look at the Orioles. They have several top prospects will be reaching the majors the next time we play baseball. And their big offseason additions have been Jordan Miles and uh, Rugen Ordor. So, it, you know, not exactly what you want, not exactly you know, rallying the troops. So I'd like to see the competitive aspects uh, you know, fixed. And I would also like to see, you know, players receive fair compensation earlier in their careers because that just aligns with how teams value these players nowadays. RJ, just recently for CBS Sports, you put out your pre-lockout uh, off-season grades. And like you said, the Orioles didn't grade so well, but the Rays, you gave an A. And I think the biggest yeah. move they made, uh, and, and part of this is giving young players fair compensation before they, you know, six years of service time, Wander Franco signed to a 12-year extension. Yeah. How important was that for, for the Rays franchise this offseason? And for Wander Franco. Yeah, well, yeah, I think both sides benefited there. I mean, it's very important. You know, I can only speak from experience, but, you know, that, that second Evan Longoria extension where they locked him up, you know, what seemed to be the rest of his prime and, you know, most of his career, I think that was even you know, more exciting for me as a fan than the first Evan Longoria extension. And, you know, we talk so much about the emotional aspect as a fan. And that's part that, unfortunately, you know, race fans haven't always gotten to experience. And I think it's part of the game that people kind of dismiss because it's not always the most efficient way to build a winning team. I understand that. However, I think it is an important part of the fan identity. You know, you want to be able to buy someone's jersey. You want to be able to, you know, have these emotional attachments to a player. And I can, again, I'm speaking from experience. When did my fandom of this franchise start to waver? Well, when they traded away my favorite player, you know, James Shields. And when they consistently traded away your favorite players and look, there's a, there's a dance to be done there. You know, it's delicate. You can't keep everyone, obviously, especially if you're in a smaller market, but yeah, I think having that aspect is great. And of course, Franco is an incredible player. You know, he's going to be, I think he's going to be a superstar. I think there was a stat that was like over, you know, he played in 70 games and over the last 30, he had like 43 hits to five strikeouts. And when you consider his youth and you consider his defensive ability and whatnot, it's just like, wow, this guy is every bit as advertised as a potential franchise changing superstar. I mean, as a fan, objectively, it is just so refreshing to finally have a player that you can imagine, okay, probably not getting traded. Uh, multiple writers quit D Ray's Bay when Longoria was traded. And uh, when Blake Snell was traded, I was wearing the Blake Snell World Series shirt I received for <laughs> Christmas, right? I don't have a lot of player-related uh, memorabilia, um, but that one was a Christmas gift. I was excited about it, and I was wearing it when he was traded. And I was furious because it, for all the obvious reasons, like here's the guy who's supposed to be the ace of this staff, 
you know, and him and Charlie Morton went by the wayside and, and a piecemeal rotation came in place and wasn't good enough. Clearly, otherwise the Rays would have gone further than they did. Well, that might not be fair. It was kind of razor's edge against the Red Sox, but uh, there's an argument to be made and we've made it on previous podcasts and that's not why you're here. Uh, a grade. <laughs> Let's get back to your A grade for the Rays. Um, Franco. Yeah, I also on the timing, I guess it's cheaper now, right? 11 years guaranteed. Yes but certainly cheaper now after 70 games versus a year from now, which would have been the, the Tatis, you know, timing or something like that. Right. Yeah. But basically every game he played, the price would go up, right. Unless he suffered, you know, some kind of uh, career altering injury, but hopefully would never have came to that either way. So yeah, I think the price would have went up and, you know, you don't want to get into a situation similar to what the nationals are dealing with, with Juan Soto, where, Basically, you need to make a decision. Are you trading him or are you extending him? Because every day that goes by, his contractual demand goes up and his trade value goes down. So good on the Rays for being proactive on that front. And you know what? Good for Franco for making his first and perhaps, you know, it depends on how his career plays out, his last fortune. Because that's one of those old Evan Longoria quotes from uh, Eric Hensky, right? Make your first fortune. I'll turn that away. And Franco, to his credit, did just that. Yeah, let's talk about some of the players the Rays brought in. And, and I, I kind of yeah. want to start with Brooks Raley, a, a guy, again, in some of your offseason writing, you've been very high on, maybe one of the top relievers out on the market. The Rays bring him in for a two-year contract with an option for a third, $10 million guaranteed. What, what are your thoughts on that deal? Yeah, I was surprised at how cheap it was because you're right. I was very high on Raley, and I think there are a lot of reasons to be high on him. I think I had him like 35th on my top 50 lists, which you know relievers generally do not rank too highly on those things because it's based in part on AAV and based in part on impact. And, you know, obviously relievers are not always paid as highly as position players or starting pitchers, but uh, with Rayleigh specifically, you're looking at someone who has literally led the league, led the majors, excuse me, two years in a row in exit velocity allowed. That's average exit velocity allowed. So he's an elite contact manager. He is capable of throwing strikes. He misses bats. He's left-handed. And yeah, I'm just surprised that they were able to get him at that low, low salary because I really thought the Dodgers or the Guardians or, you know, one of these ever sabermetrically inclined teams who were really big on overlooking ERA and you know, the baseball card stats in favor of you know, digging into the process would have given him an even better offer than that. So, you know, kudos to them because I think he's going to really be one of the biggest offseason hoops uh, you know, based on the market so far and based on what I believe of his abilities. Yeah, the payout is extraordinarily low. It's 4.25 million in the first year, 4.5 in 23, and then the options at 6.5 with some kind of buyout. So the guarantee is 10 million. I do wonder if after tax money is maybe made the raise palatable against any competitors that he had. But it was interesting to hear Brooks talk about the reasons why he chose the race because he had three clear reasons but the first was that he called tampa bay the mecca of pitching and said that he had a great setup in houston but as he's you know 33 already and looking at the final years of his career he wanted to be in a place where he could progress and grow as much as possible and he viewed tampa bay as the best opportunity in his words to take a step beyond what houston was able to do for him how many teams are more advanced than Houston when it comes to pitching? Is it like Rays, Yankees, Dodgers? Like how many can there be? Well, I would throw Guardians in there as well. You know, they're very good at, they're probably very similar to the Rays as well. And then uh, 
I don't know, after that, you know, maybe you're talking Cincinnati, maybe not. I really don't have a great feel for that. But I do know the fact that, you know, he kind of sought out pitching for Kyle Snyder is remarkable, given that his previous pitching coaches since he's came back to the majors were Brent Strom and Derek Johnson. And those are two of the best, you know, not only in the majors, but globally. I mean, you know, those two are just held in universally high regards. So it's, uh, it's pretty special on Snyder's part, and it speaks a lot to the reputation he's garnered for himself around the league. At, at the same time, that, like we said, the price, probably expecting a little bit more for a, a pitcher like Brooks Raley. But at the same time, I'm shocked that the Rays signed any reliever to a <laughs> multi-year contract, you know, a potentially a three-year deal. So that, I think, again, speaks to how high the Rays would be on a guy like Brooks Raley. Yeah, is this their first multi-year deal for a reliever since, like, the Joel Peralta extension? I'm trying to think of. You You have to go back. Yeah, maybe like J.P. Sure. Howell. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. I, have, I can't think of the last one if it's not one of those individuals. So that's really... That's pretty wild. How long was Grant Balfour's re-signing? Was that a one-year deal? I think it was two years. I think it was okay. two years. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that, but I seem to recall there being a second year because he was like rehabbing and then he got released or something. I don't know. It only lasted a few but, months. Uh, it did not go well. So let's hope this one goes better. <laughs> Absolutely. And at least there was no failed physical that predated that deal. So you're off to a better start already. Well, so the other reasons Brooks said he wanted to come is uh, I think he – was looking forward to working with Kyle Snyder specifically. I mean, you mentioned him. He talked about wanting to throw his cutter in the way that he felt like it was supposed to be used. I mean, it's a pretty good pitch for him. He's got six pitches, yeah. uh, which is absurd as a former starter in Korea for five years. Uh, he kind of retains having six pitches, but I, I think he kind of wanted to throw it kind of the way that he wanted to. And I, I'm imagining here that Kyle Snyder was like, yeah, sure, man. Uh, <laughs> but then the third reason is he said he wants to pitch in high leverage. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've read your writing, but do you view him truly as a high leverage pitcher or is he more of like oh, yeah. a, just a, a simple lefty? No, no. I view him as a high leverage reliever. I think that was just a natural evolution based on his performance and based on his profile. And it's not surprising to me at all that the Rays would give him assurance that he's going to be pitching in high leverage situations. It was actually kind of confusing to me that he wasn't already doing that with Houston. I don't know what exactly they were you know, reluctant about giving him that role because again, what I mentioned earlier, he's an elite contact manager. He throws strikes and he misses bats. That's like basically what you want from a relief pitcher, especially one he's pitching, you know, when the game is close and late. Well, well then before we get off it, I'm going to name the, uh, the Rays primary bullpen right now. And I'm, I'm curious, just your instant reaction. How many of these guys do you put in a better high leverage pitcher category than Brooks Raley? And I'm just going to name them all. Andrew Kittredge, Pete Fairbanks, JT Chargois, JP Fireisen, Matt Whistler, or the ghost of Nick Anderson? I mean, there's maybe two there, right? Kittredge obviously coming off a great season and then Fairbanks. I don't think that you can really put anyone else above uh, Rayleigh from that group, although you know, we'll see if that proves to be an incorrect assertion soon enough. But I think, yeah, Rayleigh is certainly one of the top three relievers there. I would probably have him. I don't know. I guess I would have him second or third. I don't know. It, you know, you can't go wrong, right? If you have three arms sure. of that caliber, you're probably doing pretty well. So, And the Rays are not, you know, the the, the type of team to lock in and say, this is the high leverage guy. Yeah. And everyone kind of gets their reps. I guess the argument there is because of how they behave during the Andrew Friedman tenure. Maybe they say, you know what? Rayleigh's the one with the guaranteed salary. Let's put him in the ninth inning and let's uh, save a little bit. The arbitration on Kitridge and on Fairbanks. So it wouldn't surprise me to see something like that play out based on their history. Gosh, I love talking about the Rays penny pinching. It's my favorite. 
<laughs> well, well, speaking of saving a buck, how, how's this for a segue? Uh, Corey Kluber is a lot cheaper in 2021 uh, or this offseason after 2021 than he was to pitch during 2021. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's interesting, though. You know, I think people are kind of overly down on him. Uh, obviously, he's not the Cy Young Award winner he used to be. But if you look at his season, he made some interesting tweaks to his pitch mix. And what I mean by that is he started throwing his curveball as his primary pitch for the first time in his career and also used his changeup at a higher frequency than he'd used it in like a decade. And it just so happens those were his top two performing pitches. So you know, I think you kind of draw or connect the dots there. And I would think that the Rays are going to have him lean into that curve and lean into that change even more heading forward. And I think that's going to pay off. And, you know, the downside to him is he's had some durability issues and you're probably not getting more than five innings from him, but uh, that's probably a plus to be the raise. I mean, you know, you don't want a rich Hill situation where the guy is maybe aiming a little higher than the Rays are comfortable with in terms of the workload. So I think that was a good sign as well. And I expect that he's going to be an above average contributor for the rotation. I mean, the last three seasons, Kluber has only thrown what is like 120 innings. Can the Rays expect yeah. anywhere close to 120 innings throughout 2022? Like, should they ex- be expecting health from from him? Probably not. <laughs> um, I don't. You know, it's hard to say because you know one of those injuries was kind of freak, uh, flukish. Excuse me. You know, he got hit with a comebacker, so you don't want to put too much emphasis on that. But he did have the shoulder issue with Texas, and that is concerning. However, I'm not a doctor. I don't know his medical situation. You probably, probably. You don't have to be realistic and say he's going to go on the uh, injured list at some point during the season. You just hope it's kind of one of those shorter stays. And, you know, maybe they do something where they intentionally go to a six-man rotation or give him a let's turn off. You know, they've done that before, right? You know, giving guys a little extra rest just to try to keep them in peak shape. So I think they probably have a better feel on all of that. And I'm sure they've already strategized how to keep Kluber as healthy as possible. Yeah, Drew Rasmussen last year was on a on a six man rotation schedule, even though it wasn't a six man rotation. <laughs> right. They were just able to keep giving him that extra day of rest, and they figured it out. I wonder if we're ever going to see uh, MLB teams kind of go to that college like schedule because you know the Angels have kind of done it with Botani, where for right. a while there you knew he was going to pitch on weekends. It, isn't Thor doing that too? I think uh, Syndergaard. He may. I I actually haven't seen that, but it wouldn't surprise me. And that's the same. You know, that's the Angels front office again. So maybe they've kind of learned lessons from Otani, and maybe they're going to, you know, lead the way on this. Where you know, starting pitchers can just say, "Hey, I know when I'm throwing this week." And obviously, there would be some you know, slight variations depending on your schedule, blah blah blah. But maybe that's kind of the way of the future is just uh, trying to you know, manage these workloads as well as possible by doing something like that. If you were to power rank your expectations, I'm doing it again. I wasn't expecting to do this. I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, okay, Shane Boz is maybe in the rotation to start the year. That's Should a question be. mark. <laughs> Good. Well, I would agree with you personally. Um, but the based on service time, let's say that uh, okay. the expectation here is Shane McClanahan is out in front. Drew Rasmussen yeah. is kicking around. And then Kluber, Yarbrough, Patino. And then you have... Yanni Chirinos and Shane Boz kind of around there. Are, so how many are you power ranking above the 2022 version of Corey Kluber? I think I would put him third again. I think you have to put, I mean, Boz to me is number one. I don't think there's any real debate on that. And then I think McClanahan is number two. You know, Rasmussen, obviously the results were great, but we've talked before about how I'm a little skeptical of how long it'll last. Uh, certainly hope for his sake it lasts, but you know, 
I have concerns there. So I think Kluber for me with Slada at number three, nothing against Yarbrough and everyone else, but I think that's probably, you know, off the top of my head where I would put him in. Let's let's talk a little bit more about Shane Boz, RJ. You're clearly very high on him. It's easy to uh, see why. Yes. Uh, I think we all wish he had gotten one more chance to start in the postseason after his first start didn't go so well. But but why are you so high on Shane Boz going into this year? Uh, he's just the total package. You know, he's someone who has this electric fastball. Um, I've wrote that it compares well to Garrett Cole's, and you know, Garrett Cole has arguably the best fastball among starting pitchers in the game. So that's. You know, and that's not just in terms of velocity. That's in terms of the movement profile, the extension he generates, so on and so forth. Uh, on top of that, he's got two upper swing and miss pitches. You know, his control has really come leaps and bounds since he's simplified his delivery. You know, he's not a small guy. He doesn't really have a history of injury or anything. So you're just talking about someone who, on paper, has all the makings of becoming a front of a rotation monster. And I think he... I think he's going to accomplish that. I think he's going to become, you know, the next Tampa Bay ace uh, following in the, the footsteps now of, I guess, Blake Snell and Tyler Glass now. So I think he's the next one up. And, you know, we talked about the Franco extension earlier. If if I'm the race, I'm probably calling to see what Boz's number is because I might want to lock that up for long term. Well, thank God Shane Boz got out of Pittsburgh a lot earlier than Garrett Cole did <laughs> uh, with <Yeah>. that fastball. <laughs> and Glass now. True. The last thing that you mentioned in that little blurb on the Rays with your offseason grades, the very last sentence is that you expect the Rays to pursue trades for Tyler Glasnow and Kevin Kiermeyer once the lockout yeah. lifts. We know this was discussed back in July. Why do you think they're going to continue looking at, at dealing one or both of those guys? Yeah, I mean, I think they were discussed in tandem at the deadline even, so it wouldn't surprise me if uh, something like that resurfaces. You know, I think you were already seeing smoke on Kiermeyer. You know, I had... Uh, individuals of our front offices joke the question of last now is not when do the Rays trade them, it's do they trade them before the non-tender deadline. And obviously they did not, but you know it's just hard for them to justify spending so much money on someone who realistically is probably not going to play a big part in next season's team. And so, you know, you have to explore your options, see if you can't get one of these teams to give you good value in exchange for you know the prospect of maybe having last now in their rotation in 2023 so i think that's likely than kiermeyer i mean it feels like it feels like they've been about to trade kiermeyer what three years now four years now it feels like it feels like it's never ending like i've written so many times oh this will be the winner they trade kiermeyer that never happens but i do think this is going to be the winner and i think that you know retaining margot and not trading him or electing against tendering him may also hint at that now maybe Maybe I'm higher on Josh Loeb than they are, or something mm. like that. And you know, maybe the calculus is a little different behind the scenes. But that's my guess: is that yes, both of those individuals will be with other organizations by the time opening day rolls around. I, I think the organization has a lot of love for Josh Lowe, and it's clear that there's not a real space for him until you move, mm-hmm. you know, the pieces around. And Brett Phillips. I mean, at this point, you can't get rid of Brett Phillips just because he's the most popular player on the team. (laughs) And then, uh, sorry, Wander. And then, you know, KK is making what? $13 million, $12 million, 13 next year. I mean, the salary is also, you know, starting to peak something like 12 or 13 million more than they spent last year. And if you expect the attendance to be the same, like something's got to give and KK is an easy answer. Yeah, I would point out that the two free agent signings we just talked about, I believe their combined salaries are going to be around $13 million. So you kind of do the math. At least in terms of guarantees, there's uh, yeah, yeah. 
uh, Kluber has uh, an eight million dollar contract, but I think through health he gets up to thirteen. Okay, there you go. So yeah, I anticipate Kiermaier is going, and hey, he's he's you know he's put in a lot more service time than most players in this organization. And to his credit, you know he's always been a defensive demon. He's had good years at the plate, so you know hopefully they ship him off to another contender, and you know he can go do his thing for uh, whoever he lands with. Either another contender or the Cubs, where he can be with his his brother. The Cubs might fancy themselves as contenders based on the you know Marcus Stroman signing and the Wade Miley deal, and they certainly could use some offensive help. I mean, I don't think they are going to head into next season with Rafael Ortega as their starting center fielder. So Kiermaier, you know, he's that's been a long rumored destination for him, right? He's uh, I wouldn't say local, but he's from the Midwest, and so his brother's a groundskeeper at Wrigley Field, uh, and uh, that came about because his family is uh northern indiana folks uh, so long-standing chicago area and there ever seems to be clear who would make sense for him i mean philadelphia has a hole in center field and you know, it would benefit them to get someone like here meyer can cover a lot of ground and you know the texas rangers if they're serious about competing you know do they really want to enter next year depending on garcia and Tavares? i don't know so yeah there are some options around the league and you know it's just up to the race to fit out who's offering the best package well this is an interesting segue because there's a well both new york teams i want to talk about but but the yankees mm-hmm. who were really quiet didn't do much at all before the lockout we know the rays and yankees have at least kicked the tires on a kiermeyer deal there's no chance though that they could that something like that could come to fruition before next year well i, I mean i think it's unlikely just because you know teams never seem to want to make trades within the division um i'm not gonna say it's 100% not going to happen, but I think it's probably unlikely. And also, you know, if you're the Yankees, you know, you have money, you can probably go out there and find someone else if you really wanted to. So I don't know. I, I would put them further down the rankings if we're going back to Danny's strict of power ranking uh, landing spots. I would assume they're probably not in the top two or three. Maybe I'm wrong. You would know more than I would, Danny. The, the only thing that excites me about a Yankees uh, potential trade is – uh, the Rays would only accept that deal if they were clearly the top bidder for Kiermaier. And so there's part of me that's just like, sure, rob the Yankees. Like, uh, <laughs> if the Rays have a deal lined up, now maybe they're the only deal, and that's a different problem, right? But if yes. uh, if there's multiple players for Kiermaier and the Rays do trade to trade, uh, choose to trade him to the New York, I, j- I just like that because that means that they had to be overpaying, at least yeah. to, in comparison to the marketplace if not in comparison to the race own internal rankings. The machine, the algorithm, the all-seeing algorithm. But KK, KK needs a beard, so let's not send him a beard. <laughs> Fair consideration there, yeah. Maybe send him to the other New York team. Okay, so the other New York team, the Mets are in the news. Uh, today we're recording this on, I don't even know what day it is. December, December 6th. Okay, so earlier today, Brett Olney says the Mets Buster, want to interview... Buster, <laughs> oh, excuse me. All right, you, Brett, you go ahead. You, you steer this thing. <laughs> Anyways, RJ Buster only reported that the Rays or the Mets have formally asked the Rays for permission to interview bench coach Matt Quattraro for their open managerial spot. Uh, do you see Quattraro as a, as a real candidate here? Do you think there's there's a viable chance that he ends up in Queens or wherever they're yeah, at sure. now? Yeah, I think there's a chance. I think he's going to end up somewhere over the next few years. You know, you look at the list of candidates that has been floated by Andy Martino of SNY, and it was 
Cochero, it was Andy Fox, excuse me, not Andy Fox, it was uh, Don Kelly with Pittsburgh, it was uh, Buck Showwater, Rad Osmus, and then Joe Espada, who was the bench coach in Houston. So it was basically, you know, two managerial, uh, excuse me, two candidates with managerial experience and Osmus and Showalter, and then three bench coaches with progressive organizations. So I think that, you know, you're going to see other teams follow suit. He's going to receive interviews elsewhere now. You know, is he the favorite to get this job? Probably not the favorite, just because, you know, if you're lining him up, Spada has some relationship with Billy Epler going back, and he's been a he's been a hot name for years. I mean, dating back to when the Yankees hired Aaron Boone, it seemed like a spot I could get that job. So, you know, I think he's probably the the top candidate among those three who have no managerial experience. And if they want experience, then obviously they're going to go with Showalter or Osmus. So, I would say there's a chance, but I wouldn't put him at the top of the list. He he strikes me more as like an Oakland kind of destination, also. Like the Mets. I mean, why should anyone accept a job with the Mets at this point? There's only 30 of them. You know, you get your chance, and uh, you know they have a solid roster on paper, a good roster on paper, and you know these guys are self-delusion by nature, right? You know, they always have to believe that they're the ones who can fix a situation or that they're going to succeed in a situation because otherwise, you know, why would you? Why would Derek Shelton take that Pittsburgh job, or you know, why would Braden Hyde take the Baltimore job? So I do agree that. Oakland would make some sense. Um, also, maybe he just hangs around St. Petersburg until Houston bids Dusty Baker adieu and then tries mm. to get his old friend James Click to hire him there. So there are options on the table for him, I suppose. That's a fair point. You know, we skipped a deal. We skipped a, a, a pre-CBA deadline uh, deal that the Rays made. We did. That's right. Jordan Lupau. Um, yeah, Jordan Lupau. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of my favorites, uh, new age Brandon Geyer. I hope he does well in Arizona. No, so uh, Joey Wendell gets traded for essentially a first round draft pick, uh, and I love that as a as a return on value. You talk about um, you know those those comp picks at the end of the first round being a potential uh, a carrot at the end of the stick to get teams not to tank. Right, that's a very <laughs> yes. valuable piece uh, that in between first and second round and the Rays have gotten a lot of, I mean, Blake Snell, I think was selected in that range, right? Yeah. You can get really good pieces out of here. I mean, I don't even know where to approach the Joey Wendell trade from. <laughs> we we probably just need to talk about Joey Wendell for a hot second as a concept and, <laughs> and then maybe move on to the trade. By all means, let's get into the theory of Joey Wendell. Um, and I don't know, did you get a chance to read Ian's piece on the site? I, I did. Yes, I did. And it was good. You know, Ian does good work. I'm not surprised, but yeah, I read that over the weekend to prepare for this. Um, I was the villain. <laughs> in that article, <laughs> right. Uh, and I think, uh, based on our conversations in the past that you and I somewhat agree with one another that a, uh, no power, no walk player who seems to be locked in at second base wasn't something to be uh, highly prized or sought after or oh, prioritized yeah. in terms of roster construction. And yet Joey Wendell persisted, became an all-star this year, was nominated <laughs> for a gold glove, and now he's worth a first-round draft pick. RJ, please explain Joey Wendell. Yeah, I mean, you called yourself the villain of the article. I think I was the villain of the fan base for a few years because of my Joey Wendell takes. And you're right that it just wasn't a player type that I value very highly. Um, I'm eating crow. I was clearly wrong about him. And I'll eat crow about this. I've actually come to 
correct for that bias in my analysis. And what I mean by that is there's a class of player who I believe is underrated now. I believe the Oakland Athletics are one of the teams who prioritize this player and the trademarks of this player that they don't post impressive average X velocities, but they do hit the ball within that 10 to 30 degree window so frequently that their velocity doesn't really matter because they're finding holes anyway. And I would point to the success of Josh Harrison. I would point to the success of Jan Gomes. I would point to excuse me, acquisitions of those two. And I would also point to the success of guys like Tony Kemp and Robbie Grossman, all of the A's. It shows that it's not just the Rays who value this type, it's other progressive front offices. So I think Wendell fits into that group. And I tip my cap to him for being much better than I would have anticipated. And also, you know, for opening my eyes. It sounds really stupid, but some of my favorite players are the ones who make me look like a complete moron because then I learn something and I can incorporate that going forward. And he certainly checks all those boxes. Did you think the value was right in the trade? Like, do you, is Joey Wendell a going concern at this point when he was kind of declining in the second half? Like has Joey Wendell peaked or has Joey Wendell continue to produce at the same level that he has so far and is worth that kind of return? I, it's hard to say. I don't know. I, he's probably had his best season just because usually you're not going to go wrong predicting that out of an older player. Um, that said, wouldn't surprise me if he's perfectly good with Miami. And I don't want to know how they're going to use him. I don't know if they're going to like, I assume they're going to move him between third and second. I don't know either. I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, kind of a weird fit on paper, but I'm sure they have something in mind. Or maybe they don't. That would be a lot more fun, frankly, if they just acquired a guy to acquire him. Um, but yeah, the value aspect, it really comes down to how you view Cameron Misner because he's kind of a risk reward proposition, right? You know, he's tooled up. He was obviously fairly well regarded his draft year, but you know, he's also an overage guy who struck out like 30% of the time in the low minors. So you kind of have to weigh, you know, can the Rays coaches and instructors fix the swing and allow him to have more consistent success and, you know, more consistent ability to make contact with the ball. And if so, then they probably got a pretty nice bargain on their hands. And if not, well, it's probably worth a chance because how often, again, can you acquire you know, a top 40 draft pick what, two years from his draft date? I would say not too often. Yeah. And, and my take on it was they felt the pressure, not the pressure, but Joey Wendell was a piece off the 40 man roster that you could move to make space, especially if you could move Kevin Kiermeyer. And, Personally, I think this secures an opening day roster spot and a solidified big league spot for Taylor Walls as a member of yeah. this Rays infield. How else do you think this can affect the Rays 40 man and active roster? Yeah, I think the Taylor Walls call is a good one. You know, I, you know, it's weird because I feel like he, he's gotten underrated very quickly because, you know, he didn't hit the ground running like Franco did. But maybe I'm off on that assertion. I just think he's going to become a solid player and he's probably going to. You know, if you're looking for a comparison, Wendell's probably not the worst comparison, right? I don't think he's going to be you know, a big power hitter, and he's probably going to do some things that are overlooked when you just you know, look at his baseball card. But I think he's going to be a good player. And, you know, I, it, in terms of the 40-player uh, roster implications, I think you kind of covered it there. You know, they needed a space. They have a lot of depth up the middle, uh, not only with walls, but some of the other prospects who are coming. And just made sense to – you know, move someone who had the most trade value, who also was not part of your long-term future. And Wendell was clearly the guy. Yeah, what I remember of Walls uh, midseason getting demoted or, or optioned rather back to AAA yeah. 
was a roster crunch. I remember it as being a pitching situation and somebody had to go and he, he was clearly the the last man on the roster and they were like, man, I guess we'll try Wander Franco at shortstop. He played <laughs> shortstop plenty. And then he was fine. Yeah. And it was kind of like, a, oh, okay. And uh, Joey Wendell was able to step in at shortstop and he was fine. You know, uh, like it may be even much better. <laughs> I honestly felt like Joey Wendell was much better at shortstop this year than in previous seasons. And I don't know if the player positioning just went to a new level this season or if something was unlocked, but it, it felt like absolutely no gap from Willie Adamas into a Joey Wendell, Wander Franco, uh, Franco, excuse me, a hybrid situation where you no longer needed Taylor Walls, who was putting up like a, a 10 defensive runs saved in like 50 opportunities or something. Stupid. Yeah, right, it was right. incredible. Yeah. I mean, the reputation of walls, they feel he's the best shortstop defender in the organization. So I assume he's still going to get playing time there and they may come out, you know, open the year with Franco splitting time between third base and shortstop just to kind of limit the exposure. If walls bat suffers or if he gets hurt or something like that, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if walls is their shortstop for most of the next three to five years just because of his defense. And again, I think he's going to provide more value than he showed during his big league stay last summer. But, but, you know, again, these things have a tendency to take care of themselves. And, you know, maybe we're all overshooting uh, what will actually happen with walls over the next few years. Going back to Miami for just a second. Yeah. Like, like Danny said, Wendell played a pretty good shortstop this season and the numbers back that up. Maybe yeah. Marlins view him as a direct understudy to Miguel Rojas at short. If they want to keep Jazz Chisholm at second base, there's, they've got some good defensive middle infield talent as well. Yeah. It never hurts to have just a little bit more depth. I think you, you know, you look at like the Los Angeles Dodgers and you look at Andrew Friedman and, you know, even getting back to his Tampa Bay days, what does Andrew Friedman do? He builds these rosters that almost look like spider webs because you can have a Ben Zobrist or a Chris Taylor playing shortstop one day and center field the next, or you can have, uh, you know, Gavin Lux go from being a shortstop to a second baseman to a center fielder in the course of like you know, 18 months. And uh, I know that was more, you know, out of necessity because of his defensive shortcomings, but you know, that's the kind of rosters that he builds. It's the kind of rosters that I think is uh, more in vogue nowadays than maybe it was when he was in Tampa Bay. But, you know, a guy like Wendell fits into that perfectly. I think he even has some outfield experience. So if they wanted to throw him out there in left field for some reason, go for it. So, yeah, I think having a player like that, you know, you don't have that captured in war. And Russell Carlson of Baseball Prospectus has wrote about this a lot. Like, there's not an aspect of war that can capture – how valuable a player like that is within the team building construct. And hopefully one day someone will place a number on that um, because I think a guy like Wendell and some of these other players who have come through the Tampa Bay organization would see their value improve if you had a real reading on that. Now, RJ, I, I, one more question before, before we let you go. Uh, like, you, like we talked about, you gave the Rays an offseason A grade amongst a few other teams, uh, but amongst those teams that got the A grade, who has won the offseason so far? Well, if we're just talking about headlines. I think you have to look at either the Rangers or the Mets. You know, you hand out massive free agent contracts to a pair of middle infielders within like what two days of each other. You're going to raise eyebrows. And you know, Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon were two of the top four free agents on my list. Uh, I think they're literally number two and number four. So you know, they're both really good players. They're going to improve that Rangers lineup. There are some questions, and I do have some skepticism about how good the Rangers actually are going to be in 2022. 
I don't know if they're actually to the point where you can envision them making the postseason, which is a little concerning if you're a Rangers fan because, hey, you, know, you just went out and got these two uh, players on massive deals, and yet that isn't even enough to drag you to contention. Um, hmm. And because of that, you may actually call them that's the winners of the offseason. You know, they have Scherzer. They added Starling Marks, hey, who I love. And, you know, I think he's a, a really good player, kind of flies underneath the radar for various reasons. And then they also, you know, added some depth in Canna and, and Escobar. And my only concern there is that they're making a lot on that training and conditioning staff, keeping all four of those individuals healthy, particularly the first three. Like, are all, th- all three of those guys are 33, I think. <laughs> yeah, and they've all had injuries. I mean, Marte... You know, one, of, one part of Marte's game is that he is like, like a magnet for hit by pitches. And I just have this vision in my head. And it only pops up because it's the Mets. If he had signed with any other team, I know I wouldn't have this vision. But because it's the Mets, I just have this vision in my head of him taking a ball off the wrist on opening day and being beamed out for like three months and just completely, mm-hmm. you know, decimating their lineup, their best laid plan just like that. But hopefully he doesn't come to that. You know, I want him to stay healthy because he's a phenomenal player. No, he won't be the oldest guy on the Mets either. He will not be the oldest guy on the Mets. Uh, Robinson I mean, Cano is back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for now at least, right? We'll see if right. they try to move him somehow. And who knows? Uh, I'm interested to see what Cano has left because, you know, he wasn't wasn't too bad the last time we saw him, if I'm remembering correctly. So, Well, he'll have to stay, remain not suspended. Uh, for a full <laughs> season, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, but RJ, thank you very much for coming on. Where can people find you and your work? Yeah, so I would not suggest they find me, but I would suggest they go to cbssports.com slash MLB. We have a very talented staff. Um, I can't say enough good things about my colleagues. You know, Mike Exiza, if you've read any kind of Yankees coverage over the last 10 plus years, he's the guy, he's a machine, you know, sharp as a whip, so on and so forth. Matt Snyder has all your Hall of Fame coverage that you need. And then Dane Perry is you know, one of the best writers in this industry. And I don't just mean in terms of analysis or anything. I mean, writer, uh, you know, I tell them, you know, if you ever get laid off, it'll be a good thing because you can go write the next best American novel. So, you know, I just think so highly of those three. And uh, yeah, I think if you're a baseball fan, raise interest or not, you will find something worth diving into on our site. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And once again, yes, thank you to RJ Anderson for coming on the show today and providing some great insight. Danny, but now it's time for for you and I to raise our voices about the lockout that has reached Major League Baseball after the owners and the Players Association could not reach an agreement on a new collective bargaining agreement on December 1. We're now a few days into this thing, and it's very frustrating to say the least. Hmm. I mean, yeah. As RJ said, who among us has not dreamed as a little kid of having your own uh, lockout to to be able to write about? I mean, as long as it doesn't drag on the same way RJ was talking about with Manfred always pushing us to the 11th hour, that would make me really upset. Yeah. Let's get it worked out. Let's finish it in January or whatever. And let's move on with our lives. Because if it's February and we're starting to impact pitchers and catchers reporting 
or if you're starting to impact players who need specific attention during their rehabs, race players. I mean, even uh, Brendan McKay just had surgery. Uh, who knows what his current situation is? Tyler Glass now is recovering from his Tommy John surgery and, and reconstruction. Like, does he need attention from the Rays medical staff right now or not? The Corey Kluber deal had to happen quickly. You know, thank God he lives in Tampa Bay and lives locally. So he was able to re, uh, meet up with uh, the Rays docs and the medical professionals basically the first day of the offseason and start having conversations about, um, you know, what his health looks like and where he was at. But there's a lot in the balance when it comes to to medical issues, both in terms of players' well-being and also teams being able to suss out who they're going to sign and who's available and what do players look like today. If a player gets hurt in the winter league right now, they do not get healthcare from their major league team. Uh, Robinson Cano, we talked about him earlier. He had to get pulled from a Dominican winter league game uh, in November. Where's he at in health wise? You know, it makes me question whether or not he's getting continued health care and health coverage with the team doctors. And I don't know. Even with team supervision, sometimes players over the offseason don't report in in the exact same shape or eat right. the right diets or, or or the best diets, I should say, um, or whatever it might be. We've seen G-Man Choi report to camp with less flexibility and us have to say, why did that happen? We've seen Yandi Diaz report to camp uh, in a different physique than expected, just as recent examples. Even players who are not injured, you know, still need the team's guidance and, and, you know, medical attention. So it frustrates me to know that that is a part of this, that the medical side, the human player well-being, the physical needs of the athlete are put aside during a lockout. That just drives me bananas. So I don't care for it. I don't like that. And that's kind of the re- the biggest reason why I'm like, let's just get this figured out. Yeah, and I should clarify why I've why I, I view it as such a frustrating situation is not because I'm shocked that we're at this point. We've known this was coming for over a year. We've known this was coming maybe for as as, as long as the, this CBA has been in place. We knew that this day would come. We knew, and and, and ultimately. I'm not nervous about this lockout affecting the 2022 season. We already saw a shortened 2020 season due to COVID-19, which ended up turning into kind of a work stoppage there for a month or two as the players and the league tried to figure out what a 2020 season would look like. I don't imagine either side letting this get to the point where the 2022 season will be in jeopardy at all. Um, and, And I kind of feel like, I, I'm just tired of, of hearing about it. We knew this was going to happen. We know what either side wants. And ultimately, there will be some sort of deal, some sort of compromise. And I think it's going to come, yeah, like you said, maybe early, mid-January, probably right after the holidays. As of right now, there's been no negotiating. Um, but I, I'm just kind of frustrated that this is – now, after what we had an incredible start to the offseason, everybody racing to sign contracts, obviously for this reason, now this is the focus of the baseball world. There's nothing else for right now to talk about other than the lockout. And the offseason, for so many fans uh, and, and people like us, is just one of the most fun times of the year. We can talk about rosters like we just did with RJ, and we can still have those discussions, but there's no moves being made, and that's incredibly sad. Well, there's minor league moves being made. That's true. 
So players can sign minor league deals. The minor league version of the rule five draft can still happen. It's just all the major league side. So I'm, I'm curious to see how many, um, you know, Asian leagues get involved uh, as the lockout drags on or how many um, minor league deals kind of pick up. And I have no idea what kind of contract shenanigans can happen with that. Can you sign a, a starting pitcher to a minor league deal but the contractual element would pay him like 10 million if he gets promoted to the major league side or, or something silly like that. I don't, I'm not really sure. Uh, Cause we haven't seen a lot of examples like that. You know, I think the players union would also have a lot to say about that kind of shenanigans. Too, so I imagine yeah. it's not going to happen, um, but we might see some minor league deals along the way um, that don't rock the boat. And so I think this is still an interesting time where some work can be done. And still some news, you know, Matt Quattraro, managerial moves can still be made. We know he's been approached by the Mets. And so there will still be news. There will still be discussions. We've already got some great pieces. We're going to have uh, Cole Mitchum on the podcast very soon. He just put out a great piece on D-Rays Bay about some relievers the Rays may target once this thing is agreed upon. And again, we'll still have our offseason, but it sucks for right now, the month of December, and hopefully not much longer uh, that we have to deal with this lockout. What do you want to see? Uh, can this be the raise your voice topic? What do you want to see in the season? Yeah, I think I'm very much in favor of uh, shortening the service time needed to declare free agency from six to five years. I think for the most part, it's very pro player. And as a Rays fan, I have a hard time saying this because it probably shortens the timeline for when, how long we see players in Rays uniforms, not named Juan Franco, uh, who haven't signed extensions. But ultimately, I think as we move forward that that seems to me like it's going to be a real sticking a point sticking point for the players a deal breaker uh per se and i think it's something i i would enjoy i think i would enjoy it for the players sake them being able to get paid uh, as early as possible in their careers i like that i mean it's already seven years almost every single time (laughs) when it's supposed to be six so call it five and then it will be six uh, could there be some changes with that too and manipulate service time manipulation and super two stuff Maybe you're, if you're promoted, that's your first year. Like, just make it simple. Yeah. I think that would incentivize teams to keep players down in the minors, though. Or so get them up to, earlier so you get a full or season. Or to out get of them up earlier. So there's a give and take. But how many veterans that would probably benefit? So I'm imagining late in the season, you need a replacement at shortstop. And let's say you don't want to start Taylor Walls' clock yet. So now you're promoting someone different or you're moving Joey Wendell and all of a sudden you're promoting um, uh, what's a, what's a race uh, Esteban Quiroz or someone from like the Mexican league that came over to the U S and is a veteran with a ton of speed and could play second base while Joey Wendell's covering shortstop. Like that's interesting to, to think about those. What ifs, like I think a lot of veteran players would benefit from a rule like that. And the players union frequently acts in the best interest of the uh, seasoned veterans, even though right. that's not their largest population. So um, I, I could totally see a rule change happening like that. What do you want to see? So there's a lot of things I want to see. Uh, one of them we talked to RJ about um, bring me the salary floor. And uh, I would love a standardized uh, or a more standard salary cap. So we have the the tax situation that teams are treating as a, an unofficial cap. Let's make an official cap, baby. I want to know actual like financial rules. Give me 
an opportunity like the NBA where you know what contracts are going to look like and you don't have to worry about them because there's only like three versions of what a contract could possibly be. Give me um, an NFL salary cap where you now have clarity on revenue streams and you understand like how the money is moving around. Yes, I get why MLB wants that to be a black box, but you can't tell me the NFL is not making money, even though some of that information is available to the players union and therefore is available to the media. As a fan, I want to understand where the money's going, how it's getting used, and then I can reason out and logic out things. Um, I wanted to, man, we never got to talk about Rich Hill, but the race traded Rich Hill is like a salary dump. They sell dumped a dude who was making only a couple million dollars why why does this stuff happen and if there's a salary floor and a salary cap and clear revenue lines and you understand how all the money's moving around i just want so much more clarity about why this junk happens revenue sharing the drama about that are the rays abiding by the the you know the good faith efforts behind revenue sharing and the other three teams in that uh accusation like a year or two ago it was like pittsburgh the orioles and somebody else why is that even a thing why are we having to argue about the good faith effort around revenue sharing just simplify it publish it make it clear for the union and help us understand this is where the money comes from this is what the cap is it grows with inflation, I don't give a crap. Give me clarity around that. I already talked about that with RJ. I just talked about it some more. Uh, a more uh, fun one for me, if I may. Um, if we're going to reorganize baseball, I want the stricter adherence to the leagues to come back. Okay. I'm, okay I'm tired of seeing all these National League teams come through the race schedule. I want to face the American League all year and then wait till the World Series to see a National League team. I I love that when in 2008, the Rays are facing the Phillies and I was like, F, who are the Phillies? (laughs) (laughs) Who's on that roster? Like, because I I glued in as a fan. Like, I haven't seen the Phillies. They're a mystery to me. All of a sudden, my pitchers need to hit. That chaos, that uh, chaotic element is baked into baseball for me. And so now I feel like if all the teams are the same and it's all just blah, well, then let's move to an NFL format where you you rotate which divisions you're facing. It's already kind of what they do. It, 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 they've moved toward that, but it's still kind of like loose. Like when do the Rays play the Angels? Yeah. I don't know. When do the Rays play the Dodgers? I don't know. San Francisco is Longoria coming back. Oh, we'll see. Maybe he'll come back once in the next four years. Like it's not set. So uh, I would like more clarity around scheduling and I would like a stricter adherence to league scheduling above and beyond uh, interleague play. Maybe you get that one team, right? Like the Marlins, your geographic. Yeah, Yeah. which doesn't work as cleanly for every team, you know, but. Not every team, but you know, you could, you could figure it out. Um, Maybe Arizona and Houston have to, you know, yeah. be a pairing and, and you question if that makes sense or something stupid. Right. Uh, maybe it's Kansas City and the Rockies. I don't. <laughs> There's going to be a couple odd ones, but, you know, you create a rivalry if you institute that. So it's I'm been not a few min- it. It's been a few minutes since you mentioned it, but I, I, I did bump on the Rich Hill. I, I don't think that was a salary. We actually talked with RJ why that some of the reasons that might not have been just a salary dump, but they did take on Tommy Hunter's contract and. Uh, there, there might have been other reasons that play where Rich Hill wasn't going to pitch for the Rays anymore that season. Anyways, we should have talked about it with RJ. He had clarity of thought about that, and we talked about it off the record. Dang it! I, I, I'm curious. 
and this could probably be its own podcast, so we don't have to dive too deep. Could there be something similar instead of a salary cap and a salary floor? And maybe this already exists with the luxury tax. Something similar to financial fair play rules that exist in European soccer that I know you and I are both fans of, where teams can spend the amount based on a certain amount of revenue that they bring in. So you cannot be spending money that you are not recreating in revenue, which stops, which would, in theory, prevent these very wealthy big market teams from just spending a ton, uh, way more than they're actually bringing in. I love that. As long as it comes with the same penalties that, you know, we've seen get slapped on Manchester City or whatever. Postseason bans, you know, could there be something like that? I don't know how it would work out. And obviously, the European saga is, is very different. Uh, but maybe instead of a cap, because I don't see a cap happening. I understand why people want it and a floor, why would they want a floor. But I just I, I don't think if that's what the either side is sticking on, I don't know if there's going to be a deal reached anytime soon. Uh, between the two sides but maybe i don't know further down the line something similar to financial fair play can be thrown around as an idea i mean i like it as a compromise around a cap um i mean the mlb is probably just going to hold out till there's absolutely zero clarity on money the other thing i wish could be added and it's never going to happen is i will continue banging the drum for shorter baseball games baseball's an everyday sport we can't have these five-hour baseball games happening on the regular, even four-hour games. If the game is longer than three hours, I get upset. I have things to do tomorrow. (laughs) I have to get up and go to work. I've got kids that are going to be at my bedside, right? Like I am, as someone who watches pretty much every race game that I can, uh, it's hard to justify watching 150 games if I'm not going to be able to budget my time accordingly. Again, the joys of European soccer. It's two hours. I know what my schedule is going to be. The game starts, the game ends exactly when I expect it to, and then it's over. And there are very practical ways to uh, shave time off of games. If you got rid of the commercial break in between innings, you would save, what, like half an hour? Throw some ads on a jersey patch. Right, right. So you'd have to figure out another... I a 100%. If you told me, Danny... I've got bad news. There's a new spot on the jersey where there's an ad on the sleeve. But, you know, to compromise, we're going to shorten games by 30 minutes. I'm like, why didn't you do this already? <laughs> I'm okay with it. Yeah, I like that. I don't right. want like I'm, big across the chest, but like on the sleeve or maybe even on, you know, the top left chest. I, I, think I don't care. Room. Put it on the yeah. hat. I want to be able to go to bed, Brett. I No, I am with you. And I mean, even though I'm not at your old age, I, I understand the, the benefits of sleep. I'm sorry. That I'm at me. the old, old age of Starling Marte <laughs> and uh, Mark Canna. See, but you're not getting those free agent deals that I would be getting in the next couple of years with a shortened service time. <laughs> Look, you just got to get Max Scherzer to the table and he'll advocate for all the Robinson Canos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, have we raised our voices enough? Sure. Um, the lockout's not ending anytime soon. We can talk about. We can do one of these again in a month after no progress has been made and see what our demands are then. Oh, that hurt me. Because I know they're listening. Perez and Manfred are listening to this podcast and trying to figure out what the next steps friend of, are. Friend of the pod, Rob Manfred. Yeah. <laughs> All right. 
That's going to do it for this week's episode of Raise Your Voice. Thank you guys for listening. I already teased it, but Cole Mitchum is going to be coming on the show next week talking about some of his first pieces on DRaiseBay.com. If you don't know who Cole is, he's the man behind the Twitter account at RaiseMetrics, which has been a favorite follow of mine for the last couple of years. Um, so really excited to have him on. Uh, once again, thank you to RJ for coming on. Oh, Danny, you have one more thing? One more thing. Homan Lee, go find Homan's tweets. Yes. Because uh, G-Man Choi was doing some silly things in a celebrity uh, baseball game. He was pitching. He was switch hitting again, which we, uh, you know, he's dabbled in before. And that was a super fun storyline that, you know, I'm sure the race killed. Um, and I would love to come back. So uh, if we're talking about going after the tweets, yeah, go find that. For sure. Yeah, at Ray's Metrics and at Home and Lee. Someone else tweeted it the other day. Those are like the main duo if you want to like stay caught up on all Ray's news. And obviously, at Danny Russell, at BG Rutherford 99. Those are great accounts. At too. Danny Russell is not a thing. I am on there as uh, D underscore R-U-S-S. No, I mean, the third, honestly, the third one is former writer Matt Germain. If you're yeah. looking for uh, someone to talk about the race, he's there for you every yeah. day. Good job, Matt. <laughs> I appreciate your perseverance and steadfastness. You, you and I take our weekends off to tweet about Liverpool and Chelsea. Matt's still plugging away on, on Rays and specifically Rays prospects and does a great job of that as well. So he this does. is the longest outro ever. Uh, but yes, once again, thank you guys for listening. And also check out DRaysBay.com. Rate and review. Subscribe so every new episode is downloaded directly to your device. I'm officially ending this outro right now. <laughs>